Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be for the morning. The title of today's message is The Great Change. The Great Change. Last week, we went about halfway into chapter 2. We went up to verse 10. This week, we are going to finish off the chapter with verses 11 through 22. Now, Paul thought it was super important that the Ephesians knew what they were before Jesus, remember we talked about that last week, who they are now because of Jesus, and how they got there in the first place, which is basically the gospel. If you were with us last week, verses 1 through 10 gave us a great pattern for us to know how uh, for us to, to come to Jesus, but also as we encounter people as Christians, we are to share Jesus. And sometimes that can be a difficult thing to do. And so those verses were a, a great place for us to bring those we might come into contact with. But as we pick up in verse 11, Paul isn't quite done yet reminding the Ephesians of who they used to be without Jesus. If you can remember and recall, we talked about this last week, how uh, even though we are in Jesus now as Christians, it's important for us to take time to think about who we were without him and who and where we would be without him currently. Because sometimes we can get apathetic or we can forget how good we really have it. And so Paul isn't quite done reminding them of who they used to be, that they might so appreciate who they are now in Jesus. And so he's going to dive deeper into all the implications of what it means to be a Christian and a part of the church of God. Now, what's going to be different about this second half of the chapter is Paul is going to bring up the topic of the nation of Israel. You know, it can be confusing if you were reading the Bible You start in Genesis, go all the way to Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and you see how God is so involved with this nation that he created out of Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, and how that seems to be his focus. You don't see focus on any other nation. And then the New Testament comes, and there's this focus on this man named Jesus who came to the nation of Israel that God created in the first place. And now following that, Jesus ascends to heaven, and now the gospel not only goes to the Jews, but now to everyone in the world. And it can almost be like this moment of, wait, but what happened to the Jews? What what, what is God doing now with them? What happens to them? Do they cease to be God's chosen people? But what about all the promises that God made to them in the Old Testament when he said to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Does he just kind of change directions and begins to go away from them? You see, we need to have answers to these questions. Do Jews, are, 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 is the church basically like a new and improved version of, of the nation of Israel? We need to have answers to these questions, and he is going to answer them in our place today. And what he's going to show us by the end of our time together, as we go through this part by part, is that in Jesus, he brings both Jew and Gentile together as one. As I mentioned, when God called Abraham, it was at that point in history, Genesis chapter 12, 
that he begins to make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Does anyone know what a Gentile is? Yes, sir. Jewish. There you go. Not Jewish. That's it. And there's only two categories of people according to the view of God. There, at least in, in the Old Testament, it's still, it's still that way. Jew is someone who is born as, a, as, as an Israelite, right? And then you have everyone else, which many of us in this room today, we would be considered a Gentile. And so within God's plan of redemption, it can almost seem like, well, why does he play favorites with the nation of Israel? Why for hundreds of years did he deal so kindly with them? And the reality is, is that God doesn't play favorites. We know from other scriptures that God shows no personal favoritism. You see, within the plan of God's redemption, his desire was to take this nation that was from nothing, to build it up and to infuse his goodness and law into them, light, that they would be a light then to the rest of the world. God's end goal was not just so that Israel would be like this little nation and everyone else would be excluded. No, the end goal was that God would separate a people for himself that they might be the light to the rest of the world. You could note down Isaiah chapter 49, verse six, just as a way of introduction. We have many things, verses just like this in the Old Testament where God says, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, those that are not Jewish, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God's desire was that Israel would be this light to bring salvation. But we know the story of Israel. If you've ever read the Old Testament, time and time again, when they were supposed to be the light of God, they looked just like the darkness of the world. And so they had the promise of the Messiah, but the Messiah was not just to come to bring light to Israel, but would be the one to bring salvation to the entire world. And so in Jesus Christ, the question today is how do these two groups of people fit into God's plan of redemption? Well, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 2. Let's dive in. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11. And that's a good-sized chunk, so you're going to have to bear, stay with me, all right? Uh, as your mind begins to wander, ask the Lord to help you focus. And just read along with me and listen to my voice as we read the Word of God, which we are trusting is not my voice or any man's voice, but the very voice of God. All right, you ready? Ephesians chapter 2, look down in your Bibles with me, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you... Once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, who were you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, 
and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Let's pray together. God, we are here this morning because we believe that you are in the midst of the gathering together of your people. We know that you are with us singularly, but together is where you've asked us to be. And so God, we're here on this Sunday, the Lord's day, not out of obligation, but willingly wanting to hear what you would speak to us to think, God, that today we get to hear from you. We pray that the the weight of that and the reality of that would set in, that we might allow the transforming work of the word of God by the spirit of God to truly change our lives. We look to you for all these things, and in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Well, we're looking at this message entitled The Great Change, because what we're going to see over these verses together is a change, and I believe they are pretty great. And so the first change that we're seeing is that the far changes to near. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says that you and I as Gentiles, as those outside of Israel to whom the promises of God, the commandments of God, the ordinances of God came to, you and I are outside of that, which means we are far away from God naturally. That naturally we are born into this world away from God. We're far away from God. But what changes because of Jesus is that we are brought near. And so the far changes to near. Now notice verse 11 here. It says, remember. It says, remember. It says, think back upon. Think about what it was like. Think about who you were or who you would be. Now we need to understand that at Ephesus, whom he is riding to in the surrounding region of Asia Minor, this was the secular world. This would have been majority of Gentiles. There would have been Jews sprinkled in. There could have been synagogues for sure. However, uh, the bulk of the people that Paul is writing to would have been Gentiles. And so when he says, you who were Gentiles, you were far away, but you have been brought near. But he goes into some detail of what I think is noteworthy for us to write down. And he goes through a handful of different ways in which we were far away. In what way were you and I far away from God? Well, he says very clearly there in verse 12, look in your Bibles. He says, we were without Christ. Later on in that very verse, verse 12 at the end, he says, we are also without God. The idea being that 
because you and I were born as a Gentile, not in Israel, not as a Jew, not a part of the covenants, which God's doing something new anyway. It's the fact that we are alone. We are without Christ and without God. Now, this is in contrast because at the time, previously, God had been with Israel in a way that was different than all the other nations. Remember, we find in the the Old Testament that God said to Israel, you are a special treasure among all the nations that that I have separated, that I have put apart. It was God promised to them that he would never leave them nor forsake them, that they would never be alone. The promise of the Messiah, of Christ coming to them was first and foremost for them. You see, when Jesus came, We find this in John chapter one. He came to his own, but what is his own being the Jews? What did they do? They did not receive him. They rejected him. And so in contrast, you and I were without God. We were alone. Secondly, uh, we were described, Paul would describe us as aliens. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself as an alien, but without Jesus, you are one. I'm not talking about that you are green and have weird ears, ears uh, that you, uh, you know, are, this, are this Martian of, of sorts. No, alien isn't the idea of outer space, but it's the idea of exclusion. It's the fact that as aliens, we are excluded. Notice what it says from, look at verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from what? From the commonwealth of Israel. You and I had no part in what Israel had. This is in reference to being the the beneficiary of being a citizen. You know, when you're a citizen somewhere, you have certain rights that go along with your citizenship. Well, you and I had no part in this commonwealth of Israel. Maybe you've heard of that term, uh, an illegal alien. Have you ever heard of that? Now, when you hear that on the news, Uh, They're not talking about that there's some alien from outer space that committed a crime. So now they're illegal aliens, okay? What it's referring to is someone who is outside of the country, who comes in the country unapproved. And in a similar way, you and I are unapproved from the promises and benefits that went along with the people of God because we are outside, excluded from them. Remember, we're all talking about past tense for the believer here, but we need to remember Thirdly, he would describe us as a stranger, that not only were we alone, not only were we aliens, but we were strangers. Notice what from? Look at verse 12. What does it say there? Strangers from what? I'm not making this up. Look at verse 12. Strangers from what? All you got? Yeah. Someone raise your hand. Can't hear you all once. Yeah. Yeah, from the covenants of promise, the covenants of promise. Those were what we see in the Old Testament when God said, I will do this in your life. I will do this in your land. They were God's promises. And you and I, apart from Jesus, who made us a way to come into being the people of God, we were strangers from the promises of God. We are far off from any promise to him. We see this when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, verse 22. He says to that woman, you worship, she was a Gentile, a non, she was, half, she was a half-breed Jew, but the Jew, Jews considered her um, a Gentile. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. Notice, for salvation is of 
the Jews. You see, the Bible describes in the book of Romans that you and I were grafted in to Israel. We were grafted in in a way that we now get to be a part of the promises that God gave to them. But without it, we're strangers. And then fourth and finally, in this section, we see that we're simply hopeless. We're on our own. And without him, without what he did, even if we had hope, listen, all hope outside of Jesus is a false sense of hope. You know, many people today have a false sense of hope. Some people have a hope that, man, if I, if I, just, if I just do enough good that pretty much outweighs my bad, I know it's just all going to work out in the end. I'm going to get to heaven and God's going to see I'm really a good person in my heart and I didn't do anything that bad. And, and, and that's a false sense of hope because that's not how it's going to go. Some people have the false sense of hope that, man, if I just go to church on Sundays and I do the clocking in, clocking out type of thing, that at the end, God will see that I tried. I'm always going to like dedicate my whole life to it, but like I tried. And so they have this false sense of hope that everything's going to be okay. Listen, apart from Jesus, everything is going to be very unokay. It's not good news. But in Christ Jesus, look at verse 13. In your Bibles, we see the contrast, but now. Everyone say, but now. Does that remind you of anything we looked at last week? Title of the message last week was, but God. Right? We saw that in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy and great in love. And we see another transition here when he says, but now. You were alone, an alien, a stranger, hopeless. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Can I get an amen? amen? But now, if it wasn't for Jesus, this is our description. The far off, though, have become near. The, those in the distance have been brought close, close to God. He'll say this in the next chapter, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, just six verses from what uh, we're looking at today says that the Gentiles, as you and I, should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers. We get, to, we get to have a part of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And so all those promises that God promised to his people, we now get to become his people. And it's not that all of us become Jews. No, there's something new that God is doing. That's why when he was talking to people, Jesus, when he was here on earth, he would say, I have a new covenant. It was always set to come. Revelation chapter one, verse five says this, because how did it come? How were we brought near? What bridged the gap? The only thing that bridged the gap was the blood of Jesus. Revelation one, five says to him, Jesus, who loved us and washed us from our sins and his own blood. That's a pretty gruesome picture there. But for the believer, it's a precious one. Jesus washed us in his blood that we might be clean. Kind of interesting, clean from our sin. You see, it was by the blood of Jesus that that gap, that separation, the fact that we were hopeless, aliens, strangers, alone, it was by the blood of Jesus being spilled upon the cross that now the distance 
is brought close together. And so that's the first change we're looking at. You ready for the second? All right, the second is this. We see that enmity changes to peace. Enmity changes to peace. And we find this in the next section of verses 14 through 17. Do you guys know what the word enmity means? Think about it for a moment. Think about a word closely associated, which be the, would be the word enemy, right? Enemy. It's the opposite. To have enmity with someone is the opposite of having peace. Uh, we see this often in sports. You see this between Dodgers and Giants. There's enmity between the teams. Another word to describe it is the word hostility. Maybe if you don't like uh, uh, West Coast teams, East Coast teams, the Yankees and the Red Sox, there is hostility between those two teams. Uh, Or maybe sports isn't your thing. Chick-fil-A and Canes, there is enmity and hostility between those two camps of people. I could probably get one of you to come up here to give me a to give us an exhortation of why Keynes is superior to Chick-fil-A. And so, yeah, this guy, see, this guy's ready. I'm not going to do that, but you could, right? That's the idea of of hostility. I remember uh, back when uh, the Dodgers lost in a World Series against the Astros because they cheated, we found out years later. That's another story for another day. But I remember how, how the Dodgers lost, and I was, you know, just, I was so into that World Series. And then we actually, we went to Hawaii, right? Uh, not too, too long after that. And I remember being in Hawaii, we were hiking, middle of nowhere. This guy walks past us with an Astros hat on. Now, I'm not used to seeing Astros fans in California because I don't think they really exist. Um, but, but right, Hawaii, there's like people that travel. And so they're probably from Texas. And I remember like this weird thing in my heart. Like I saw it and it was like disgust. It was like this like moment of like, like I'm trying to not, you know, just... Okay, get control of yourself, Joel. You don't have to hurt him, okay? It's okay. He's just hiking. Enjoy yourself. And there's like that. You guys can understand what I'm saying, this hostility. Well, that hostility before Jesus existed between God and us and between us and the people of God. Now, we don't often think about it that way. You know, our separation from God doesn't mean that just, uh, oh, God's like, oh, I'm I'm good with you. You're just like, we're just not, we're not cool. No, there's hostility in someone's relationship with God when they are outside of Jesus Christ. It's a not good relationship. And same with the people of God. You see this in the gospels. Do you remember in the gospels over and over again, when you see the the Pharisees and the, the religious Jews who were disgusted by Gentiles, right? We see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that story that Jesus gives. Do you remember how it was the, the priest and the Levite who saw the, the man who was a Samaritan, uh, who, who was someone, we don't know what he was, but he was someone on the, the side of the road. And, and there's kind of this like, oh, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna help him. You see, there's this hostility that exists between Jews and Gentiles, And because there's something, there's a hostility between God and man. But what Jesus does is changes that enmity, that thing between, and changes it to peace. Not just in relation to God's relationship with man, but also man's relationship with man. And how does he do this? Well, we see that the problem 
is the law of commandments. Notice there in verse 15, it says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's just a big term to say, the reason there is such hostility between Jews and Gentiles and God and Gentiles is because they, being Gentiles, did not obey, excuse me, the law of commandments. James 4.4 puts it like this. Do you not know that the friendship with the world, those who don't believe in God, is enmity or hostility with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that is you and I apart from Jesus Christ. Now, before Jesus, the Jews had a way to bridge that gap temporarily. You guys ever read the Old Testament sacrifices and the different things that the Jews had to do? Uh, right now, I'm, uh, within my personal reading, I'm reading through the book of Leviticus, and uh, it's gnarly. If you ever read through the book of Leviticus, it's like this offering, that offering, and it's talking about the fatty lobes and the blood and this, and the kidney is going to be offered that way. And it's like, oh my gosh. Gee, I always, whenever I read Leviticus, I'm always like, Jesus, thank you that I don't have to do any of that. I mean, I'm not against like killing animals in, 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 a, in a way that's like, you know, for eating. But, but that just seems gnarly when you read how, the, how, they, how they did everything. But what was it for? It was because they had this sin because they broke God's commandments. But they had a temporary way of fixing it. And God instituted this way where they could sacrifice these animals. Uh, it was this innocent life being taken so that they could have a restored relationship with God. Now we know though, that that was only temporary. That those sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament pointed ultimately to Jesus who would be the ultimate sacrifice, not just to cover sin, but to take it away. But as far as the Gentiles go, they had no way of being right with God, but this enmity then turns to peace. Romans chapter 10, verse 12 through 13, we see this reality when Paul puts it like this. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, check this out. In Jesus, there is no distinction. That's the idea of difference between Jew or Greek or Gentile. Meaning that whether you are a Jew by nationality or you are a Greek or German or whatever else, that in Jesus, your nationality, your ethnicity has nothing to do with your status in regards to salvation. Does that make sense? So it's the same Lord overall, meaning God in Jesus built this bridge to bridge the gap that, that existed between Jew and and Gentile, but we got to get something right on this fact. There are some who teach that when the New Testament comes about and the church of God is built on the foundation of Jesus, that it is the church that replaces Israel. That as a nation, God is done with Israel because he is now, now uh, focused on the church of God. The problem is that it's not true. It's not biblical, that teaching. We find in the Bible that it wasn't that the church replaced Israel, but it was the fact that there are still Jews, those 
of the nation of Israel that, that can be saved. But there's no, there's no distinction in regards to salvation. But this is where we got to understand Jews as individuals and the nation of Israel as a whole. We know from God's word that God still has promises that are yet to be fulfilled to the nation of Israel. You see, you and I right now are in something called the church age. Does anyone know when the church age started? Yep. Yeah, with with Jesus. Okay, that's when it started. Does anyone know when the church age ends? Yeah. The rapture. That is when the church age ends. Right now, we are in a time period that began with Jesus and is not yet finished, though it seems like we're getting close. And this is called the church age. Now, when the church age ends with the rapture, that begins a seven-year period of time when God shifts his attention once again to the nation of Israel uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that, hadn't, that has not yet been done. And so he will once again deal with the nation of Israel. He is not done with them. Uh, but for now, it is the church age. It is those that are under the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we move on to our last and final point for today, we need to understand how Jesus did this. How did he change the hostility that existed because of the broken laws of God to peace? How do we go from enemies to being at peace with God? Well, number one, if you're following along, you can note down that we're told in this section that he broke the enmity. He broke it. Very specifically, we find in verse uh, 14, uh, sorry, 15, nope, 14, that he broke down the middle wall of separation. Do you guys see that in your Bibles? Look at verse 14 down in your Bibles. It says that Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation. Now, from our best understanding, this middle wall of separation was something that existed within the court of the temple. So I don't know, again, I mentioned the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Have you ever read the the schematics or the blueprint for the temple uh, in the Old Testament. We're actually given a lot of different ways how the temple was supposed to be built and how it was. If you ever read about Solomon building the temple. Well, we know that there was a, something called the court of the Gentiles. These were people who were Gentiles who wanted to come and worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Now they could come but they had to be separate from the Jews. That the Jews and the Gentiles were not to worship in the same way at the same time. They, they were to be separate. In fact, even, you know how Paul is writing this letter from uh, what we know is Rome and he's on house arrest. The reason he even got there was because Paul earlier got ac- accused in the book of Acts of taking a Gentile, crossing that middle wall of separation uh, to the court of the Jews. Now, when Jesus said, I have right here that Paul says about Jesus, that he broke down the middle wall of separation, I believe one of the things he's referring to is that very wall. Jews and Gentiles no longer have a different way to worship. We all worship God the same in spirit and truth. But even more than that, it goes beyond, we find out 
In Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51, this is right when Jesus dies, that something happens. There's another wall, in a sense, that is broken down. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yelled, uh, yield, yelled, yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Did you know there was a physical reaction that the earth had when Jesus died? Look at, the, look at the scripture. The moment Jesus dies, he yields up his spirit. We're told that there was a earthquake and that resulted in what is known as the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom. Does anyone know what this veil, what was behind this veil? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the presence of God and what is known as the holy of holies. It was the Ark of, that, of the Covenants, that, that box. This was the place that before Jesus, this is where God met with his people. Now, we know about the Holy of Holies, though, that God warned the people and said, there's only one time that someone is permitted to enter my very presence, which is on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest of the people is able to come in and offer the sacrifice for their sins. But other than that, if anyone was to enter that Holy of Holies, they would have died on the spot entering the presence of God. So what's being illustrated here? Now that very veil is torn and what separated God from man is no longer there. It's in a sense what we find here in Matthew is God saying, come on in, I have made a way for you to be in the very presence of God. Secondly, he abolished the enmity. He's not, he not only Broke it down, broke it, but he abolished it. This means to inactivate. We find in Romans 10, 4, I love how simple Paul puts it here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When Jesus came, he said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I came, does anyone know, to what? Fulfill. I came to fulfill it. Meaning when Jesus lived, he perfectly fulfilled what the Jews and Gentiles could have never done. He fulfilled it to a T. He was perfect regarding the law of God. And so by his perfection of it, he lived the life that we couldn't. And so put an end to someone trying to live by the law to earn favor with God, because that was never going to happen in the first place. And so he abolished it. He, he inactivated the power of God's law against someone else. You see, apart from Jesus, what's going to happen is that one day every person is going to face Judge Jesus. The law books will be put out and your life, the book of your life will be put out. And, and Jesus will look at the law. Jesus will look at your life. And unless you have Jesus who lived that life perfectly, each and every detail, you will be punished according to what you didn't fulfill. Why? Because God is a good and just judge. But what Jesus did was he abolished the power of the law in our lives. Thirdly, and finally, before we move on, is that he killed that enmity. Killed it. He put it to death. He eliminated it entirely. I love how Colossians 2.14, Paul would say this as well, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. We had a whole list of how we were 
uh, failing regarding the law of God, which was contrary to us. And he has, what did he do? He has taken it out of the way. I love the picture of this. He nailed it to the cross. Who was nailed to the cross? You see, he killed the enmity, that hostility that existed between man and man and God and man, because he himself was killed upon that cross. And so now whether Jew or Gentile, listen, everyone has the opportunity to have the peace with God so that they can experience the peace of God. Third and finally, as we begin to uh, land the plane is, is this reality, is that in Jesus, the last change that we're talking about today is that the foreigner becomes a citizen and the stranger changes to family. We find in verse 19, he says, now therefore you are no longer strangers, no longer foreigners, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Everything changes. Those who were far have been brought near by his blood. He became our peace through that death on the cross. And we now have access because we are no longer strangers to the promises of God. We are no longer foreigners to the benefit of being his people. I want you to notice and zero in on verse 18. Look at verse 18. It says, for through him being Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the father. Everyone say the word access. Access. This word, it means to have an opportunity of admittance, to be admitted, which provides the right to speak. So it's not just to be welcomed in, but it's also there's certain rights and benefits that come along with this access. Now, who doesn't love access? Everyone loves access. When you don't have access to something, you want access to something. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been somewhere where you got like special access compared to other people? Maybe you went to a concert and you had like backstage access, or maybe, uh, maybe you went, uh, you know, uh, early to a baseball game and you've been in like the, the dugout or the locker room, special access. I remember years ago when I was in high school, uh, high school ministry here with Pastor Shadrach, uh, that the junior high and high school, they did a trip to Washington, D.C. It was pretty cool. It was uh, called a heritage tour, and they basically took junior high and high school students across the country. We stayed there for a week and looked at all the monuments, and it, it, was, it was very cool. Um, and, you know, Pastor Jack has a bunch of connections to those in Washington, D.C., and so uh, he had flown out there for a day, and uh, he had got us access into the Capitol building. And uh, we got to be there, and in the rotunda of, of the Capitol building. And then uh, we actually, we got even special access to the house chamber. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's a room uh, where they'll have, uh, you know, some different meetings regarding Congress and, and stuff like that. And, um, and so it was, it was really cool because no one else was in there. Just our, our group got to like be where like huge decisions and speeches and uh, all kinds of stuff are made. We had this special access, right? Access is an awesome thing, but it isn't just that fact that we have access to, you know, go to some room or building, but we have access to God himself. The next chapter, Paul would say it like this, Ephesians 3.12, not only do we have this access, but we have boldness and access with confidence through him in faith. I really love those kind of two additional things that he, he adds to this idea of access, boldness, courage, 
and confidence, with confidence. I like that idea. You see, you and I have an all-access pass to the very throne room of God anytime, anywhere. We're no longer far off. That hostility no longer exists between us and God. We're no longer strangers. We're family. We're no longer foreigners. We're citizens. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore come, everyone say boldly. Oh, come on. You gotta, if you're going to say the word boldly, you got to say it boldly. There we go. To the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. I think very few believers, and sometimes myself included, really live this verse. Boldly come into the throne of grace. You and I have unmatched and unparalleled access to God. But I wonder how often we take advantage of it. I wonder how often we're bold with it. You know, there's a certain boldness that comes with citizenship. And especially that of American citizenship. Sometimes a little too bold. Right? Americans around the world are, are known for, uh, for being bold. There's a certain confidence that comes with being an American when traveling. Uh, at least used to be. It's not so much the case anymore, uh, but it's still different than a lot of countries. And the, and the boldness would come even if I, you know, if something happened to me in another country, I know that my government would have my back. Now, again, not as true as it once was, but there, there's kind of that, that idea of, of confidence because of where you belong. And at home, when it comes to family as well, we have a certain level of boldness and confidence. And, you know, I doubt many of you, when you go back home today, that you're going to get out of the car and, you know, go around and, and kind of wait at the door and, you know, do a little, little knock and maybe I'll ring the doorbell just once. No, when you come home, have you ever come home and someone's inside but the door's locked? What do you do? Right? You ring the doorbell like a million times and you just keep ringing it until someone answers and then your sister comes and she's like, what? Right? You, know, you would never do that at anyone else's house. Why do you have that kind of boldness? It's because you have this confidence, this is where I belong. You see, we have that confidence in so many things, but what about in our relationship with God? You were once far off, but you're now near. You are now at peace with God, and more than that, God keeps, I mean, think how many terms we talked about today. God is trying to communicate with us that we are his and nothing will change that. And so it is with this type of change that God builds his church. We don't have time to get into it, but if you look at the last couple verses there in chapter two, we see that it is with this foundation of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone with the prophets and the apostles, we get to stand on the work that others have done. And God says, I'm still building my church this day. You see, remember the church age does not end until when? until the rapture, which means God is still at work 2,000 years later, building his church stone by stone. And if you're a Christian, then you're part of it. You're part of it. You are what the Bible described as a living stone. Jesus is the cornerstone, right? We sang that song, and I think we're going to close with that song. Have you ever thought about what, what does that mean? And the Bible tells us this, that, that Jesus is our chief cornerstone. The idea of a cornerstone 
is the, the, the stone or the piece of a building that is the most important. Without it, the building falls. Like right now, see this pillar in the middle of the room? That's in a sense a cornerstone pillar. That pillar, something happens to it, that roof is coming down, okay? Don't worry, it's, it's solid, okay? You see, Jesus... Jesus is our chief cornerstone and ain't no one moving Jesus. And you and I are, are built on top of that. This is the picture that Paul closes here with and, and Peter adds to it. Look on the screen. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, notice verse six, therefore it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. I love that last part. See, as believers, we can have boldness in the access we have. We can have confidence in it because everyone look at me. Jesus says to us, promises to us today, if you believe in me, you will never be put to shame. You will never be cast out. You will always have a place. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And one day we're gonna see that place and we're gonna see the person of Jesus Christ face to face. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these changes that have occurred in our life, that once we were alone, aliens, strangers, hopeless, you've brought us near by the blood of Jesus. We were once in opposition to you and to your people, but you've brought us into the fold. You yourself are our peace, and we thank you for it, that though we had no place within the people of God, we had no reason to think that we should receive any promise of God, but you made a way. You stepped out of eternity into humanity. You lived here for 33 years. Perfect. You, you didn't fumble once. Lord, you died upon that cross innocently. When you died, the temple was torn in two, the earth quaked. We're so glad today that you being that chief cornerstone didn't stay in the grave, but rose. That you appeared to many, many people. Lord, that you went before those who followed you and you assured them of their mission. You assured them of their purpose and their place. And you said, go, therefore, into all the nations and make disciples. You gave them that charge, and that charge still exists to this day. Nothing has changed other than the changed people you've added to your family. And so, God, today we pray that we would be those living stones being stacked upon one another. Lord, that you would build up your church for the glory of God and the good of your people. We look to you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.